small wonder won't be seen tonight, so we could bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files! I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Scream! Scream. What's your favorite scary movie? Yeah, well, Scream. Scream? <laughs> what a great movie. Man, it is such a good movie. It's so nice to see it again. Yeah. Uh, like, it's been a while since I've watched the original. I think I think Scream is my favorite series of movies. Like, I think franchise. the quality of the yeah. franchise is really solid. At least yeah. the first. I think all of them are fairly solid. I don't think there's, like, a Jason X. No, no. There's a, definitely not anything that that's that level of yeah, bad. It, it does have a level of quality that most... Horror movies don't sustain throughout their that is true run, but uh, the original again, you know, Wes Craven reinventing horror, you know, with yeah. his buddy Kevin Williamson. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it just it's just funny. It just kind of came out of nowhere and yeah, redefined horror. It basically saved the horror genre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by this point, it was a lot of the Jason X's in. Awful, like, 10th, 9th, 10th movie in a franchise yeah. that, that were just bad. Yeah, you know, we're a few years from Candyman and, and you know, its sequels, and it's there wasn't a ton of really unique stuff coming out at that point, especially in the mainstream studios in terms of horror. No, no, and this definitely revitalized. Unfortunately, there were a lot of... Uh, Copycats. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they aren't – you know, I know what you did last summer. It wasn't a bad movie. I mean, they were yeah. still fine, you know, horror the, films. The, there was definitely good moments in it. I mean, it it made me feel – every time I watched – I still know what you did last summer. I know what you did last summer. I'm like, oh, she just watched Scream again. Yeah. But, you know, that's this is what happens when you redefine a genre. Right. And it, tr- it tried to do with urban legends what Scream did with the slasher genre. So yeah. just, you know, yeah. tried to do a little switcheroo. Yeah. Well, take yourself back to 1996. March 13th, unemployed former shopkeeper Thomas Hamilton walks into the Dunblane Primary School in Scotland and opens fire, killing 16 infant school pupils and one teacher before committing suicide. Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, September 7th. What the hell? I mean, honestly, what type of (laughs) psycho kills children? I mean... You got to yeah. be like the worst. Like it's it's, man, it's just it's uh, it's unconscionable to me going and killing anybody. Honestly, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> surprise, yes, surprise. Obviously, yes, obviously. But you know, going in and targeting kids, you've got to be a, a real effed up individual to be that. Yeah, just, just absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty awful. Uh, September 7th, rapper and actor Tupac Shakur attended the Bruce Selden versus Mike Tyson fight and afterward was shot and injured in a drive-by shooting attack by an unknown assailant. He was left in a critical condition afterwards and died of his injuries at the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada six days later on September 13th. On September 30th, 2023, over 27 years later, Dwayne Keffy D. Davis, the last surviving witness of the incident, was arrested and indicted for Tupac's murder. Yeah. We'll yeah. see. We'll I see mean, if he did it. It literally just happened. And surprise, the guy who survived is the one who did it. Well, he's been a person of interest for a I, lot well, of years. Yeah. yeah. They're just, you know, there's been so many conspiracy theories and... and uh, lore around Tupac's death. Was he actually killed? 
Yes. <laughs> Sorry, but yes. But no, I mean, they said the FBI did it. The cops did it. Biggie did it. You know? Yeah. yeah. But I think they're saying that it might uh, trace back to Suge Knight. That would not surprise me. <laughs> I, uh, allegedly. I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't know for sure. <laughs> if you're listening, Suge, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's still in jail, but uh, yeah. if not, he should be. But uh, yeah, you know, um, better late than never. Yeah. Hey, you know, I mean, it, it, maybe at some point there will be closure. You know, the, the worst thing about it is Tupac was an amazing artist. And yeah. the fact that he was, you know, not just he was a great poet. He was a great rap artist he was a really talented actor yeah the guy had it all going for him and huge future and he you know he would have been doing great work up until today yeah and and beyond if if given the chance i think that is true november 19th martin bryant is sentenced to 35 consecutive sentences of life imprisonment plus 1035 years without parole for murdering 35 people in a shooting spree in Tasmania earlier in the year. I really appreciate the effort, and it must have been a Herculean effort on your part, to uh, have mass shootings that weren't in the United States. I think that was a brave choice. Yeah. You know, well, how I mean, easy and typical it would have been <laughs> just to put the thousands of mass shootings that we I have know, every day. But no, you picked Tasmania. And Scotland. Scotland, yeah. Well, this was, there were some mass shootings going on in America, but the really bad ones were international, and then then we kind of caught up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, look, and we surpassed them. (laughs) We've not let up since. We took that ball, and we rolled with it, and we were like, you think you could do mass shootings? Hold my beer. Uh, But, But not a Bud Light. No, okay, all right. December 20th, Scream is released in theaters just in time for the Christmas season. What's your favorite scary movie? Christmas with the Cranks? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sound of freedom. (laughs) So Scream starts with Kevin Williamson, uh, an actor from North Carolina. Williamson had first moved to New York City to pursue acting and managed to land a part on the soap opera Another World, uh, which... I realize now, I think I said in a previous episode that a different soap opera was my mom's favorite. Another World was what I was thinking of, which Kevin Williamson was on. Oh. That was my mom's go-to for well, soap operas. Surprised she hasn't corrected you. I'm surprised she hasn't either, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he moved to Los Angeles shortly after where he had small parts in the TV series In Living Color, in the films Dirty Bunny and Hot Ticket, and in various music videos. Around this time, he started taking screenwriting classes at UCLA. Okay. While attending UCLA and house-sitting for a friend, Williamson saw an episode of Turning Point, the ABC equivalent of 48 Hours, on Danny Rowling, the serial killer who preyed on college students. Yeah, the Gainesville Ripper! Yeah, he murdered five students in Gainesville, Florida over four days in August 1990. I don't mean to make light of the murders by saying it that way, by the way. I mean, there are people that did die, yes. It's Uh, horrifying. I mean, I've seen... you, You know me. I... You watch so much yes, true crime. <laughs> I have an uh, affinity for true crime shows, mostly Dateline and 2020. Yeah. I don't really go deep into the ID. I used to. Right. But I don't right. really go deep into the, you know, the niche things like, oh, the women killer, you know, yeah. mothers who uh, have three children who are killers. They have very specific really? shows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's yes. so weird. That's the, that's the beauty of murder in this country <laughs> is there's so much of it that they can have niche things. But, yeah, no, I... I I uh, am kind of fascinated with all that stuff. And, yeah, the Gainesville Ripper 
So you know about you've you've seen stuff about him. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about him. I this is all new to me. I'm shocked I'd never heard of him. It's it's not it's not very similar to the Scream, you know, things. It, yeah. It, it kind of has the same flavor to it in terms of, like, where it happened and whatever. But it wasn't, like, you right. know, right. two college kids and spoiler right. alert for Scream. <laughs> if you um, uh, so Brolin later confessed to raping several of his victims, committing a triple homicide in his home city of Shreveport, Louisiana, and attempting to murder his father in May of 1990. Yeah. In total, he confessed to killing eight people. He was sentenced to death for the five Gainesville murders in 1994 and was executed by lethal injection in 2006. Yep. No more. He is gone. Uh, the episode of Turning Point disturbed uh, Williamson so much, and he realized after that a window was open and anyone could have gotten in, so he armed himself with a kitchen knife and called a friend for support. Okay. Wow. So what does that good friend do? They start talking about horror movies. Nice. Uh, turning <laughs> Point spooky. <laughs> eventually turned to movie serial killers like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. The next morning, Williamson was awoken by a nightmare and spent the next three days writing what he called Scary Movie, which would eventually become Scream. Yeah. While writing, to keep him in the mood, he listened to the Halloween soundtrack nonstop. Yeah. Man, that is, that's healthy. <laughs> he also drafted two five-page outlines for possible sequels. Uh, he developed much of the script around a single line of dialogue. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Unfortunately, by this point in the early 90s, as we were saying, most of his favorite horror movies, like A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, had fallen out of favor as they made more and more bad sequels to these successful first movies. Yeah, they didn't care. At that point, it was just a property, and if they could have a script in an in a annual release, they didn't care what happened. I, it was my, one of my favorite lines is Tatum in Scream going, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street? Well, the first one was good. The others were bad. Yeah. <laughs> it was, although, technically, Wes Craven did work on another one later. But, well, uh, not all of them were bad. The New Nightmare was really interesting. Well, that's because it was Wes Craven. <laughs> and there was another one that he did that was really interesting. There was a, there, they did a whole screamification of, yeah. of yeah. Nightmare. Right. With the new Nightmare, I think that was. Because the whole thing was like, it was all meta, and they were making the Scream movie, and Wes yeah. Craven was in it, and, yeah. and uh, Heather Langenkamp was playing herself, right. and Freddy Krueger, and it was just this whole yeah. weird yeah. meta. They brought it. I think it actually, I think it was before Scream. It might have been. Honestly, I don't but know. I, that might have been part of the reason why Wes Craven was drawn to this. I think it was after. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. If only there was a way for us to figure I, it I'm out. I'm going to look right now because I wonder <laughs> But I'm pretty sure that New Nightmare was 1990. Well, I don't know if New Nightmare was the one. I know the one you're talking about. Right. Where it's, it was like he was shooting a movie. And yeah. then it was actually like Freddy's real. Mm-hmm. and. Um, it might have been before. Oh no, it was in '94, so it was it was it was a little bit before this, but not too long. Right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, and, and I agree. The new night, new nightmare. Also, because it is Wes Craven, it was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the others like Dream Warriors and Dream Children or whatever were not good movies. I don't know if that was the one where we found out that Freddy Krueger was born from a nun who was raped by a thousand <laughs> madmen. A thousand <laughs> madmen. I don't know. One of the movies is like, okay, well, yeah. that's a little overkill. But that's just, that's just where those movies had gone, where those franchises had gone. It was like, it's like, well, we, uh, how far do we dive down in the depths of the mythology? You yeah, know I, mean? I think Dream Warriors was the last fun one. That was four, though. I yeah, I, it was. They were not good. It was fun. They're it was fun. dumb, but yes. it was fun. Yes. I mean, that's the thing. I will forgive a dumb horror movie if it's fun. If the if the 
if the spirit like Toxic Avenger is not a good movie. No. But it's fun. Yeah, agreed. You know, agreed. and it's like that's the thing. Like either a horror movie can be fun or smart, and usually it's not both, but Scream was both. It was both fun and smart and funny. This is why I like the movie Armageddon. It's not a good movie, okay. but it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. It I, is. I mean, I had fun watching it. I did. It was, you know, I mean. Some parts of it. <laughs> <laughs> Animal Crackers, those are your favorite oh, part? God. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Williamson's characters were intentionally designed to be knowledgeable about these horror movies and their typical elements with the intention of creating a unique killer who was not only aware of horror film cliches, but also exploited them for his own advantage. Yeah, which is really interesting. The funny thing is, though, uh, uh, Williamson is also guilty of creating the entire <laughs> genre of teenagers speaking like 35 year olds yes. and having very intense, you know, it's like. Dawson's Creek, and yeah. you know, it's just uh, it. It was a really funny time when every teenager was speaking as if they were Woody Allen or yeah. in a Woody yeah. Allen movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, and it doesn't. It's it's a little bit on in Scream. You see a little bit of that. It's not as bad. Scream. They're still kids. In Scream, yeah. you know, they're yeah. smart ass kids, but they're still kids. There's, they're yeah. definitely look. I grew up with a lot of these. Uh, <laughs> you know, I grew up outside of uh, San Diego, so. And I went to a private school, so a lot of the kids I went to school with were really rich and had yeah. these big yeah. houses and these big parties. It was very similar, like the big parties, yeah. the big thing, yeah. you know, uh, and a bunch of little privileged white kids, you know, who have everything right. handed to them. And right. it's just like, it just shows you how disconnected these kids are. That's another thing about this movie that I don't think a, people, a lot of people talk about is like the class aspect of it oh yeah where these kids are just so privileged and so disconnected from everything that they'll run around in the hallways you know yeah or yeah or they'll you know they find out that the principal's been butchered and they want oh let's go see it let's go exactly these little suburban sociopaths man well and and the jamie kennedy character obviously was not did not come from the same kind of money because he's working at the video store and they just shit on him the whole time yeah yeah i mean it's, it was yeah, yeah. You know. i mean you're right it is, is definitely there is a class system in place in the movie that's just there under the surface every one of these houses were like <laughs> the huge mansions. Like 14 rooms and like I like how at the end they're like oh and in a farmhouse this blah 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 and it's like farmhouse really the mansion yeah i mean it was so big that uh tatum was dead hanging from the garage door and no one saw her for like three hours i guess nobody needed a beer (laughs) uh williamson said about his approach to the movie or to the script i thought you could expose the rules and play with them then the audience doesn't know what they're going to get suddenly they're on edge i started playing with the tropes and the rules were part of that that is the most spot-on Kevin Williamson I've ever heard. Well, I'm assuming since he's from uh, South Carolina. North Carolina. North Carolina. Oh, North oh, Carolina. It's, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Boy. See, it's a different region. <laughs> I just figured he sounded like Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Williamson pursued Scary Movie, the script, because it was a type of horror film he enjoyed as a child but believed were no longer being made. He was right. Uh, even so, he did not believe studios would develop the movie and intend to use it to garner attention and secure other work. Oh, boy. Back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Williamson's agent had him scale back the gore, removing descriptions such as... The insides are slowly rolling down her leg. Because it would make it difficult to sell the script. Uh, Williamson refused to cut any dialogue, however, believing it set it apart from similar films. Yes, I mean, the dialogue is what sells the project. Because oh, it, yeah. Because it completely 
it's so it's it's kind of one of the first meta films meta yeah. horror films it's kind of aware self-aware of it. well and it's very all the dialogue seems very natural and organic and yeah. like it's it's very it's like that's how kids are talking you know i mean like jerks it, jerk kids <laughs> By 1995, several studios were competing to secure the rights to Scary Movie, including Morgan Creek Entertainment, Paramount Pictures, Universal Pictures, and filmmaker Oliver Stone. Oof. <laughs> yeah, dodged I a really bullet on that make one. it. Um, yeah, what are we going to... Well, the motivation is going to be the murder of John F. Kennedy, <laughs> and then they're going to take a lot of mushrooms and acid, and, and they're going to go around on a killing... Wait, nope, I, do, I made that movie already. I know the two with the killing spree, I made that. JFK, I made that. Oh, I don't know. I might have to pass on this one, Ollie. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know a lot about kids. Williamson had sold another script he'd written called Killing Mrs. Tingle, but it had been put in turnaround and had zero chance of being made. Until this was made, and then it was made. It was made, and it was not very good. It wasn't that bad. (sighs) Look, Helen Mirren was pretty effing awesome as Mrs. Tingle. Helen Mirren in that? She was Mrs. Tingle. God, I don't remember. I only saw it once. And and, uh, Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes is the star. And I want to say, I think, Michelle Williams? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah. Maybe. I, no, I, no. Maybe, because they were in Dawson's Creek together. That would be weird. No, Michelle Williams was when, in another horror movie, wasn't she? Very possibly. There were yeah, so were many. all in horror <laughs> movies back point, then. It was like, you did TV, you did horror movies. That's what you did when you were. But I don't think she was in that, because it was like four kids who kidnapped their teacher, right. and they have to kind of keep right. her, right. you know, and... and Anyway, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't horrible. It wasn't. You know, it's all of those movies around the time were serviceable, and I will sure, say that they sure. they were just as good as the glut of horror movies in the seventies or eighties. Yeah, know? yeah, I, I still I don't had that kind of fun. Yeah. The scary movie scripts came to the attention of producer Kathy Conrad of Woods Entertainment, which had a development deal with production studio Miramax. Ooh. She brought it to Richard Potter, the director of development for Miramax's genre film focused subsidiary Dimension Films. Potter expected a stupid spoof, but was drawn in by the opening scene and recommended Miramax chairman Bob Weinstein to pursue the rights. Williamson had purposely written the opening scene to emulate Janet Leigh in Psycho, which with a heavily promoted actor being killed off in the first act. That first act, that first opening of the movie would make a great short film. I mean, just oh, it yeah. stands alone on itself. And Drew Barrymore is fantastic. Oh, she's so good. Fantastic. And what a, it, and I know we get into it, but how cool of her to be like, no, I want this part. Yeah. Because yeah. I think I'm going to do it better. And it's like, yeah. it's the most memorable part. You know, if you ask people that just tangentially know the Scream franchise, they'll de- they'll be like, oh, that Drew Barrymore thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, for her and, and Matthew Lillard are the ones yes. that stand out for me. Yeah, but me too. I think Even he, watching it again, God, man, he never stops moving his tongue. It's so weird. It's gross. <laughs> but he is also one of those actors that is just in it. Oh, yeah. In yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, his reaction, he's just so present in the scene and constantly reacting without stealing focus and like the scenes between he and strangely going to say it but between he and jamie kennedy are actually <laughs> really really good that is because he is a strong he has some of the best reactions yeah. in the whole movie like telling just to the part where when uh billy is like they're you know they're stabbing each other and and Billy starts going off about his motivations and there's just one shot of Stu and he like the look on his face is like what the hell are you talking about God, this isn't what we me. agreed on yeah. like he's just no we were supposed to be the crazy motiveless killers and like but it was all from like a half second shot it was well like, he Matthew Lillard is the perfect example of the 
soulless teen or just the moron that he, goes along with it for whatever reason. I, I believe he's actually psychotic. Oh, because I, I, I don't think he had a motivation. He just found a good friend that was like, hey, I have a good reason to kill people. And he's like, I think he's yes. just easily manipulated. And he is completely, look at that house. He's completely disconnected <laughs> from reality. Yeah, his parents are nowhere to be found. I don't know. He's just a, he's just a latchkey kid gone wrong. <laughs> so Bob Weinstein agreed, considering an opportunity to produce films instead of just distributing those of others. Although others offered larger figures, Williamson's lawyer advised him to take Weinstein's offer around a half million dollars because Dimension was willing to make the film immediately. Yeah, smart move. Yeah. Williamson revised the script based on studio input, removing some of the gorier content, such as exposed internal organs and severed limbs, and adding the murder of Principal Hembree because Weinstein said there was too long a period following the opening without any deaths. That makes sense, but it's just really funny. I mean, things are so much gory now. Oh, I know. They're so much gorier with, you know, severed. Even just TV is just gory and disgusting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very quaint that they're like, oh, you can't show any blood parts or stuff. Too much. Uh, This solved a separate difficulty Williamson was having explaining why all but the core group of characters leave Stu's party in the finale as they go to see Hembry's corpse. Because they're awful human beings. Let's go see the corpse! They literally tear up the lawn as they're driving away. It's like, you're such little assholes. No respect. The Scary Movie title was eventually changed to Scream late in production because Weinstein was concerned Scary Movie would lead audiences to believe it was a comedy instead of a horror movie. Yeah, because there were all those scary movies <laughs> out, you know, yes. with the same the title. Scary Movie franchise, yeah. It's weird that Scream was a non-spoof version of a spoof movie. It's crazy. The search for a director took over two months with Danny Boyle, Tom McLaughlin, Sam Raimi, Robert Rodriguez, George A. Romero, Quentin Tarantino, and Anthony Waller all being considered. Well, I don't think a lot of them were considering taking it. I don't don't think so either. I mean, I think this was their list of people they wanted to do. Uh, I mean, Quentin Tarantino directed it. It would have been three hours and it's just like dialogue. It would, uh, okay, look, we're going to have to rewrite the script. Okay, we're going to make it three hours long. And they're going to, I got to throw in like eight different uses of the N word. Um, (laughs) The explanation of the rules would have taken 45 (laughs) minutes. And it would have been him. He would have been like, (laughs) he would have cast cast himself as Randy. Who had the old guy come in? (laughs) Randy must have failed the school about 10 times, but he would have been Randy. And, uh, John Travolta would have put all the kills. (laughs) I was in Greece. Uh, no agreements were secured for directors because they interpreted the script as a comedy instead of a horror satire. Dummies. Uh, Wes Craven was discounted by the studio due to his lack of experience directing satires. Uh, Craven liked the script, but he wanted to work on less gory and more mainstream content, including a film adaptation of the novel The Haunting of Hill House from 1959 because of the negative public perception of him based on his previous films. Craven's assistant, Julia Pleck, and producer Marianne Madalena continued to push Scream to Craven. His interest was renewed after the Haunting of Hill House adaptation was canceled, and he experienced the personal disappointment of his failed horror comedy, Vampire in Brooklyn, in 1995. Yeah, they ended up making that the remake of the Haunting of Hill House. They did. But, uh, yeah, Vampire in Brooklyn was just I don't be honest, I don't think I've ever seen it. You're not missing much. <laughs> after reading the script, Plex said Craven suggested the studio make him an offer he can't refuse. And so Dimension did. And he took it. The deal also offered Craven his choice of other projects to direct after Scream. Williamson met Craven to discuss the script, believing he would request substantial rewrites, but Craven's notes related mainly to typos and some minor additions, including restoring some of the gorier content and refining the ending, which was not yet fully realized. Kevin, let me tell you about your 
your, and your. <laughs> a difference. And there, there, and there. All can, right, Wes. Can you hear it in my voice? Yes. <laughs> there, and there, and, and they there. are. Yeah. He was really bad at contractions. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised Kevin Williamson had typos. Uh, so Williamson said, <laughs> you did it once, you got to do it again. The story stayed pretty much intact, but we added some scares and shortened it. Wes reworked some of the action sequences and would argue and go back and forth, but there's a point where I had to realize that Wes is more experienced than I am. Describing the script, Craven said, What it forces you to do is sort of look at the reality of things we typically look at as, un- as amusing. Like the Friday the 13th type of deaths where people have arrows through their heads and kids scream and laugh. But that suddenly starts happening in their actual lives. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 okay. That is a summation of the movie. <laughs> Thanks, Wes. What happens? So they cast Drew Barrymore as Casey Becker. Uh, atypical for the genre at the time, Scream featured a cast of established stars as well as relatively unknown actors. Uh, executive producer Carrie Woods used his friendship with Barrymore's agent to approach her for the lead role of Sidney Prescott, but she requested the smaller role of Casey Becker because that's the part I loved the most. All right. Hey, look, she was excellent at it. Good for excellent. her. She was great. Yeah. So good. And it's 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 just her, man, for like the first 15 minutes of the movie. It's yeah, just it's all literally her. her. Yeah. And if that scene doesn't work... It's make or break for the movie. That sets the whole right. tone for the flick. Right. And if you, if the audience isn't buy it right out of the gate, then the movie is doomed. It is. Uh, producer Marianne Madalena suggested that Barrymore had wanted to leave the project entirely, but took the smaller role, role to avoid disappointing Bob Weinstein and his brother Harvey. Yeah. The filmmakers agreed to the change, believing it would be impactful to kill off their most well-known actor during Scream's opening and convince audiences that no character was safe. Yeah, it was brilliant. They did that with uh, Stephen Skull in uh, uh, Executive, executive decision. decision. And it was an executive decision to have him killed off. And it make... was the most messed up death ever in Executive no. Decision. That poor man. Best movie he ever did, <laughs> though. His true. best performance. It's true. Uh, <laughs> you know, there wasn't a stunt. He just literally, they had him fly out. And they were hoping. Yeah. Like, Damn it, he made uh, it. He lived. You know, he's the absolute worst host Unanim- unanimously oh, oh, on the SNL? worst host of oh, SNL ever. Are you kidding me? What a weirdo. Awful weirdo. Awful He's uh, weirdo. Putin's best pal. He's a Russian now, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he does judo with him. I don't think he can teach you. Have you seen him lately? <laughs> He's like a barrel with legs. <laughs> Can't lift past a knee. They accidentally put him in the uh, fat bear contest. They didn't realize <laughs> he wanted to. <laughs> He totally won. Why does that bear have a ponytail? <laughs> what is it? Oh, my God. That's Steven Seagal. Hey. 1995 was an interesting year for Drew Barrymore. I just got to say sorry. really quickly. I'm so sorry. No, no. But I love Steven Seagal movies. <laughs> Steven Se- old Steven Seagal movies are one of my big guilty pleasures. Yeah, yeah. Hard to kill all the three-worders. Yeah, Ho-ho yeah. Ho back when he was skinny with the pony, and he oh, still yeah. couldn't lift his legs. He was a slap fighter. I don't know what the name of his fighting was. It was slap do. But, oh, baby. I love this. <laughs> uh, Steven Skull. <laughs> 1995 was an interesting year for Drew Barrymore. She posed nude for the January 1995 issue of Playboy two years after doing a nude shoot in the magazine interview at the age of 17. Director Steven Spielberg, who was also her godfather, gave her a quilt for her 20th birthday with a note that read, Cover yourself up! <laughs> okay, Steven, you 
you prig. <laughs> Good lord. Enclosed were copies of her Playboy pictures. The pictures had been altered by his art department so that she appeared fully clothed. Gross. That's a kind of gross. That's just gross, by the way, Stephen. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it's a little much. It's Yeah, that's a little heavy-handed. She's just a free spirit trying to find her way after being she, a child star. I mean, she had been through, by the age of 19, she, she'd been through more than most people go through their entire lives. By the age of 13, she had been through rehab. Yeah. You know, that woman has lived a life, you know, yeah. and, and a crazy life. And, and so many, again, reinventing herself so many different times yep. and, and really uh, the longevity she has is crazy. It's, it's really nice. She's yeah. just always seemed kind of like a, a little sweetheart. You know, yeah, just she like seems, a nice person. She seems like somebody I'd want to hang out with. Sure. Like she gets to down and chat with. Yeah. yeah. While appearing on The Late Show with David Letterman, Barrymore climbed onto the desk, flashed her breasts to David Letterman, and gave him a kiss on the cheek as a birthday gift. Something's going on there, though. With uh, all of this, something's uh, going on with her. Yeah. She modeled in a series of guest jeans ads during this time and appeared in three movies. Boys on the Side with Whoopi Goldberg and Mary Louise Parker. Mad Love with Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, that's the one where she played, like, manic depressive or something, and Chris O'Donnell's trying to save her. Yeah. Poor Chris O'Donnell. He's so <laughs> bland. That poor guy is just the blandest actor ever. If if White Bread acted, it would be Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> she was also in Batman Forever, a smaller part as one of Two Faces' assistants. Again with Chris O'Donnell and Chris O'Donnell. Oh, yeah, poor Chris O'Donnell. Uh, just such a bad, bad. I, yeah, I know. I know. I yeah. I My mean, friend Batman Forever was unfortunately. Not a good movie. Look, Chris O'Donnell apparently is a really great guy. My buddy Sean. Worked on that movie. Oh, and yeah. he and Chris used to play basketball at lunch all oh, nice. the time. And he was just a very sweet guy. I'm sure he is. It's just, he's got, he, I feel like he had bad agents and just got put in some some stuff that. He's just also, there's nothing to, there's something bad about Chris O'Donnell. Right. But there's nothing special about Chris O'Donnell. Right. Chris O'Donnell is like if you just found some random football player in Texas and gave him an <laughs> acting career. It's just like, you know. Yeah, he spawned a lot of Texas boys to come to L.A. and try to be actors. But he's still working. I think his NCIS, yeah. you know, he's been Yeah, yeah. With... I mean, he's, he found his niche. Yeah. Like, he's, he's doing his so thing. Good for him. Good for you, Chris. Uh, Bear Moore can most recently be seen on her syndicated daytime talk show, which apparently now has no writers. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think it's going to last. You know, I don't know. I feel badly for her. It was dumb of her to come out and say that she was going to start the show. I think... Yeah. Every other talk show was waiting for her to pull the plug to see what was going to happen so right. they could do the thing. And, right. and right. she Not. just happened to be the one that dipped her toes in the water. But, yeah, it was just not a good look. I don't I pro- I don't think that it was probably her idea to do this. It was probably, probably the producers not. and probably whatever. Not, yeah. But even so, you know. I mean, her it, name's on the show. So it's like she. It is her show. And she yeah. does ultimately bear responsibility, whether or not that's fair. But if. You know, I get it. If the writers she, don't want to come back, they don't no, come yeah, back. Yeah, she did the right thing. She waited, and then, and they, you know, and I'm sure she respects the fact that they were like, look, we're we're done with this, you know, and it's like, okay. And if the show ends, Drew's going to be fine. She'll find yeah, something else. Yeah, She'll bounce yeah. back and find a She'll, sitcom or something. She'll do great. Nev Campbell was cast as Sidney Prescott. Uh, Vanessa Shaw and Reese Witherspoon were also considered for Sidney Prescott. Who's Vanessa Shaw? She was in Hocus Pocus, The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Ladybugs. She was the, the female love interest in Ladybugs. Okay. In 1992. Okay. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield. The, the Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> yeah. coach in the women's and the, thing, and Jonathan and the, Brandeis Jonathan had to pretend Brandeis. to be a girl. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe I remember that movie <laughs> so vividly. 
It's because it's your favorite movie, Jim. I catch you watching it all the time. Hey, I love me some ladybugs. Uh, Witherspoon was discounted because she looked too young compared to the other cast. She would have been great, though. Uh, And Craven's choice, Molly Ringwald, who was 28 at the time, believed she was too old for the part. She was right. We don't need another Grease or... The whiz type of situation <laughs> with a 40-year-old playing a 15-year-old. Uh, the final choices came down to Alicia Witt, Brittany Murphy, and Nev Campbell. All would have been great. Alicia Witt is a very underrated actor, Agreed. in my opinion. I agree. Uh, Brittany Murphy was always great. I think Brittany was a bit too much. She, she, I don't know if she could have been tough enough. Who knows? Brittany Murphy always put in a really great yeah, performance. Yeah. You know, she was yeah. a really talented actor. I, I, I don't know if she would have had the reserve that Nev Campbell seems to pull off in the, in the movie. But Nev um, Campbell was perfect to play not an innocent, because she's not some innocent goody-goody. No. She's just a, a traumatized, right. post-traumatic stress disorder. You right. know, right. that dialogue, that stuff does not sit right anymore. <laughs> it's so gaslighting. Her and Billy. Oh, my God. And she just, like, the guilt she feels for not effing him because of her yeah. trauma is like, girl, come on. It was There was a couple lines that Billy gives her in the, literally in the police station. And I was like, dude. Yeah, it's like right after she was attacked, too. Right after she was brutally attacked. He's like, well, well you got to get over your mom's daddy, dummy. <laughs> it's been a year. Yeah, come on. I got blue balls. What are you going to do? You know, if you don't let me get rid of my seed, it'll blow up. You know, it's bad for boys. Oh, I don't care about your dead mom. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Billy. I'm so sorry. What a you're, horrible girlfriend I am. You're so right. You're so right. I can't yeah. believe I'm backing you up. Uh, according to Williamson, Campbell swiftly emerged as the favored choice among the principal crew, and to improve her chances, they filmed her screen test first, forcing the other contenders to try and surpass her performance. Weird. The producers said Campbell brought athleticism from her dancing background with a combination of strength and vulnerability. They're absolutely right. That is a perfect way to describe her. Describing what attracted her to the role, Campbell said Sydney was... A fantastic character for any kind of movie who transitions from tormented, traumatized, and secure young woman to an overwhelmingly empowered and strong. Nice. Also, that was literally a tape... And that was not Jim. That's her non-acting voice. Yeah, she's it's she's in those. You see all those videos where you're like surprised that people yeah. have like don't have accents. Yeah, Nev Campbell exactly. always number one. Exactly. She yeah. She, she sounds also, like a three pack a day <laughs> smoker. <laughs> she's actually yeah. She's seventy two years old. <laughs> Campbell is Canadian and appeared on a few in a few Canadian productions, like an episode of The Kids in the Hall. I remember that. I don't remember her. I, I need to rewatch that series. That. I, it was one of the. Um, one of the characters that they played, like a young girl in school. Oh, yeah. And uh, there were all these schoolgirls, and she was one of the schoolgirls in the right, episode. In the, in the, okay. Uh, she did end up landing the role of Julia Salinger in Party 5 in 1994, which she appeared on for six seasons. I appeared on that show several oh, times. Nice. The show won a Golden Globe in 1996, and Campbell was lauded for her acting ability. I was not. <laughs> this led, and I didn't win any awards. This led to a part in the movie The Craft, co-starring Robin Tunney, Feruza Balk, and Rachel True. Didn't lead anywhere for me. Uh, in fact, <laughs> The Craft was what put Campbell on Craven's radar, as he really enjoyed her performance in the film. She was good. She was the, the burned-up witch, right, that had like all the, yeah. the scars. Yeah, I think, yeah, if I remember correctly. It's been a long time since I've seen The Craft. And then there was the other girl. Um, 
there were two other girls. <laughs> well, there's there's four. I thought it was there just three. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Nev Campbell, Robin Tunney, Faruza Balk, and Rachel True. Oh, okay. Yeah, the four of them. Yeah. Uh, Campbell can most recently be seen in the criminally underrated Twisted Metal on Peacock. She was great in that. And if you haven't seen Twisted Metal, check her out, man. It's a fun, fun show. So good. I, hopefully second season because she's going to have even bigger part. So I'm excited. And what's up with her not aging either? She I don't know. Just she still looks. The same. She's still literally, she's got the Paul Rudd. Like, she just looks exactly the same. Yeah, she's a vamp. Vampire. <laughs> Courtney Cox was cast as Gail Weathers. Such good casting. So, so hateable in this movie. <laughs> I mean, she's like, what a great part, too, because she is absolutely hateable, but she's literally the hero. The hero, yeah. She saves everybody at the end. That's her her arc, is that she was just in it for the money and exposure, and then she realizes that she needs to be the hero. And it's also cool that she, you know, you think she's just using Dewey, but she ends up liking him. Yeah. And they end up getting yeah. together. And then it's, they got together in real life, too. They did. They did. Producer Carrie Woods suggested Courtney Cox for the cold and calculating Gail Leathers, believing it would be interesting to play against her typical personable characters in series such as Family Ties and Friends. Is she personable in Friends? I mean, she's pretty... Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't... I mean, of all of... I think she's way more personable than the other two. I don't know. She's extremely uptight and... I, uh, I, I, I think I mean, Phoebe's the most personable one of the three. <laughs> okay, that's actually true, yes. Craven did not believe Cox could play the part, and so she wrote a letter assuring him that... Being a bitch wouldn't be a stretch at all. Dear Wes Craven, all caps, <laughs> how dare you think that I can't play a bitch? I will show you a bitch. I'm right behind you. I'm right you now! And then, <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh my god, that was so good. Yeah, no, she's got that... It's the voice. It's the command. She's really good at just yeah. taking charge of the situation. I don't yeah. look. Yes, uh, is she an uncaring, uh, cold, calculating journalist who doesn't care about anyone besides herself? Pretty much, yeah. But she does have a soft side to her. She's not a complete yeah. sociopath. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, she was actually right. <laughs> yeah, she like, was I mean, right. that was that was the the she book was about, about Cotton. how Cotton Mathers or Cotton, what are we, Cotton Weary or whatever Cotton Weary was not the actual killer, okay, and sure, she sure. was right. I get it, but do you bully a fifteen year old? Seventeen, she's seventeen. But it was she was sixteen or fifteen when it happened when her mom died. That's true. And this cold court thing going on, calling her a liar and and and, and disparaging her character, a child's character. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree. She's, Mar- she's basically Marjorie Taylor Greene chasing around the the Stoneman Douglas kid. She saw she in the movie. You see her go through realizing how wrong she was, even though she was right. She was still wrong, and she needed. That's why she ended up kissing Dewey. Still wrote a book about it. She, in the second movie, she well, didn't change that much. Third movie didn't change that much. Fifth <laughs> movie didn't change that much. Yeah. Yeah. Brooke Shields and Janine Garofalo were considered, but a more established actress was preferred. Garofalo would have been great. She would have been good. And yeah. and I think Brooke Shields would have been fun. Brooke Shields is a much better actress than people give her credit oh, for. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cox gained a foothold in TV starring in the last two seasons of Family Ties, appearing in 19 episodes of the show, but became a household name because of Friends, appearing in 236 episodes of the show. <laughs> she would be nominated seven times for Screen Actors Guild Awards for the show, winning once. Uh, she had appeared in Masters of the Universe in 1987. You know, that... Was more believable than friends living in a New York City that has zero <laughs> black people living in it. Well, yes. 
until until eight seasons in. Oh, when Aisha Tyler, when Aisha Tyler shows was up. ham-fistedly brought in awkwardly to try to make up for the last ten seasons. <laughs> she was also in Cocoon: The Return in 1988. Oh, baby, with the goot. Was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, and, uh, uh, Mr. Diabetes. <laughs> Mr. Ripley. Mr. Destiny in 1990. Very. Underrated film. I actually really like that movie. Jim it's Belushi. Been a long time since I've seen it. Michael Kine, and it's, a good movie. it's one of those double do switcheroos yeah. where the guy wakes up and gets all of his dreams. Right, a hapless loser gets a, the wish from Michael Kine. I don't even know if Michael Kine was in it, but I think he was. Um, <laughs> but and, James Belushi definitely was, and and a great performance by Jim Belushi too. Yeah, Jim Belushi. Is is gets a bad rap, I he think. Is. He's yes, he's and, underrated. And God love him. He pivoted and now he grows weed. Yeah. Yeah. He's a weeder. Uh she was also in Ace Ventura Pet Detective in nineteen ninety four. Oh yeah. And that movie holds up really well. Oh god. There is nothing horrifyingly embarrassing or offensive in that movie. Not at all. Uh, Scream should have given her more feature cred, but her only really successful films were the Scream sequels. She wasn't in a ton of movies after Scream. None. Of, they could not transition any of the Friends actors to film, unfortunately. No. They tried. They tried. They definitely they tried. They pushed yeah. old crappy Matthew Perry on us oh over and over again, and we're like, enough! In Three to Tango? Uh, enough. Three to Tango, one of the greatest movies of all time. <laughs> enough. We've had enough of him. We don't need him anymore. Uh, she continued to gain a foothold in TV, appearing in 20 episodes of Dirt in 2007, and 102 episodes over six seasons on the sitcom Cougar Town. I never saw it. Heard it was good. I just I heard it was good, too. I would never saw it. I'm... I just kind of drew drifted away from network sitcoms. Yeah, yeah. She'll be seen in the upcoming Last Chance You on Netflix, a scripted drama series based on the first two seasons of Last Chance You, a documentary series following a small college football team. Okay. Uh, she stars and is an executive producer for the show. Yeah. Uh, I know there was no... All I could find was stuff about the documentary series. There was just a few things about sure. this. But apparently it's coming. So, oh, okay. Yeah. David Arquette was cast as Dewey Riley. Mom said you're going to respect me when I'm wearing a badge. <laughs> but he plays it so well. Oh, my God. Look, <laughs> so well. David Arquette is great at what he does, yeah. you know? And he's he he is so good in this movie. And yeah. he's yeah. he's... I think he's a much better actor that people give him credit for, and yep. I just think he hasn't really been given the opportunity to really show what he can do. He was he was very much following in the same footsteps as like Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted. Yeah, it's just Keanu Reeves was able to pivot and become an action star, right? And David Arquette went into pro wrestling. Yeah, he tried to be a wrestling star, <laughs> which is so I mean, bizarre. Just, yeah, but he loves wrestling. He made yeah, that he weird wrestling movie with Oliver Poovy. Mm-hmm. It's a Poovy. A Poovy. He weird made that Poovy <laughs> with Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt, yeah. I, I yeah. Uh he you actually didn't see because it's a podcast, but I'm like shaking my head he's, he's in bewilderment. Head and, yeah. David Arquette actually auditioned for unspecified younger characters, but he was attracted to the role of Dewey in acting against Cox. Uh, he had a long term plan. Yeah, he did. But he also was looked way too old to be in the it'd be one of the high school kids. Even yeah, though he's he a baby. I face. know. I agree. That's why I was like, really? They were gonna have him uh, yeah. But that uh that child molester stash he has is awesome. <laughs> Courtney Cox had just gotten out of a six year relationship with Michael Keaton. Yeah. Which I totally didn't realize. Oh yeah, they were together forever. Like eighty eight to like ninety four or something. I was just like, really? Man, I love Michael Keaton and I really love Courtney Cox, but that just seems exhausting. <laughs> that relationship. <laughs> that is so true, honey. That is so true. We're going out with uh, 
We're going to go out with Courtney and uh, her boyfriend again. Michael? Yeah. She's still dating Michael? Yeah, they're still together. I don't know why, but just uh, be ready for it. (laughs) Uh, Cox and Arquette ended up getting married in 1999 and had one child but divorced in 2013. Uh, They continue to work together with their Coquette production company. They produced Celebrity Name Game. They did. Which I was on. And they personally... some cash. Picked me. Yeah. Yeah. They watch all the tapes. They watched all the tapes for the people that were, you know, picked and they made the final decision. And uh, uh, we heard that they were very entertained by our addition tapes. You did did great. You guys were great on the show. uh, What's his name? Alex. (laughs) Uh, Alex Walters was my partner on that show. Extremely talented guy. Hilarious. You guys were great. It's a great episode. Uh, If you're listening, Alex. Check out, you, check out a celebrity name game on Plex. There's yeah. a whole channel now you can watch. Uh, if you watch long enough. You'll, you will see, yeah. You might see me. Uh, it's really interesting that uh, they separated, Cox and Arquette separated in 2011, finally divorced in 2013, but they actually have said that their production company, they, they actually worked better together. Yeah. Like, it was like, hey, we realized this is what we should have been doing the whole time. Yeah, they, yeah. I don't know how it is now, but yeah. uh, back then, at least, they, were, they, were, they said that they made better friends than, yeah. you know. Yeah. The character of Dewey is written as a dumb jock, but Arquette interpreted it as a position of authority getting no respect. He wants to be John Wayne. He wants to be this tough guy, but he's just got a heart of gold. Arquette had early success in his career in TV. So much more interesting, too, by the way, than playing it as the dumb, typical oh, jock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, that you know, where I grew up in Escondido, all of the dumb football players who couldn't get into college became, right, became the, the a-hole the deputies. In yeah. the, you know, or the, the deputies of police department, and they were the worst. Yeah. It was just, uh, you know, well, so, yeah. so good for him. They for need, taking that and, and, and making it, it more. Was, uh, the whole, all the bits with him in, in playing against uh, Rose McGowan and, like, about the mom and, like, yeah. him being related and him just, like, come on, man. Like, just so insecure. It was, it was so great. Like, yeah. the looks he gave when he was in the station and they're like, come on, Dewey, take us home. And he's like, oh, are you going to respect me? And he's, like, looking around like, oh, I've never done it in here, then. So excited about the hot girl showing interest. That yeah. he was just like, and he was yeah. smooth with her, too. So he's here with me. She's here with me. Miss Gale. Do you want to come take a walk with me? Yeah, I was 24 for a whole year. <laughs> yeah, that was cute. That was great. It was a cute little courtship, too, between them. It was really, yeah. the, the chemistry was definitely there. It was believable, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was in 13 episodes of The Outsiders in 1990, based on the S.E. Hinton novel. Yep, I remember that. Uh, I've never seen that. Yeah. Did not know that was a thing. That oh, came out in 1990, too. too. Yeah. It was weird. He was in 12 episodes of Parenthood in 1990, based on the 1989 movie. Uh, Arquette also had a small part in Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992 and in Airheads in 1994. Arquette's most successful movies have been in the Scream franchise, much like Courtney Cox. Uh, In 2000, he started a career as a professional wrestler, best remembered for his widely panned stint in World Championship Wrestling, where he won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship and headlined the Slamboree pay-per-view event. Okay. Uh, He would later receive praise for his work on the independent wrestling circuit. All right. Uh, Can most recently be seen in Mrs. Davis on Peacock. He was great in that. I think he's a great actor. He's very underrated. Um, a lot of fun. Just seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was great in the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. Um, he seems very genuine. He seems like somebody that's not going to, like, and he seems, say, loyal, but he seems like he'd be a good friend. Like sure. somebody you could call up and he'd help you if need be. Like Yes. Yeah. And he's been through a lot, you know. He yeah. lost one of his siblings. And, yeah. Um, uh, what was her name? The, um, the 
Uh, Alexis Arquette. Alexis, yeah. yeah. She she passed a few years ago. Uh, yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Brother of Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. And, you know, who's also a great actor. Great, yeah. Very talented family. Uh, Rose McGowan was cast as Tatum Riley, uh, Dewey's brother, Dewey's sister, not brother. Uh, Rose McGowan's agent jeopardized her chance to play Tatum by insisting on a payment of $250,000 instead of the offered $50,000. Okay. Which was lower than the $100,000 received by some of the other principal actors. Uh, as a result, McGowan had to re-audition for the role twice. Mean. Uh, <laughs> it was just mean. Thor Birch and Natasha Leone also auditioned for the role, with Leone was uh, being the preferred choice, but as she was under 18, they could not consent to joining without parental permission. She would have been great. She's a great actor, but it would have been a very different role. She would have been more of the, like, fast-talking best friend yeah. rather than the, the, you know, ingenue, sexy, whatever. Right, right. You know, no against, you know, yeah, yeah. Natasha Leone, but yeah, Rose oh, McGowan, yeah, yeah. I mean, was it in the contract? I, I'm sure... Gross old Harvey Weinstein was like, ah, she could be on a movie, but she can't wear a bra. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like, good Lord, just give the poor girl a bra, for Christ's sake. I know, I know. Uh, McGowan influenced Tatum's design, dyeing her hair blonde to avoid having two dark-haired main female characters, removing an Indigo Girls poster from Tatum's bedroom because she would not listen to the relatively older band, Yeah, and rejecting costume suggestions in favor of her self-bought outfits. She looked great. Look, she was great in this. Yeah. She did a perfect job as that type of character. She looked like somebody that I would have gone to high school with. She looks like an ex-girlfriend of mine, which is no. crazy. But uh, um, so much like her uh, <laughs> that it kind of freaked me out. <laughs> but uh, there's a fine line between like the Dawson's Creek, fast-talking 30-year-old high school kids yeah. and the smart-ass smart kids. These right, kids were right. smart and aware of their situation, they didn't really come across as 30-year-olds. They came no. across as, as as not naive. They were they were smart kids, yes. but they were still kids. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And she did a really good job of kind of playing that part of the best friend who's loyal but kind of wants to be like, look, you may want to rethink these things. And Yeah. Oh, she dies horribly. They did. They really, all of them really did a good job of, well, except for Nev Campbell because it wasn't written in her character, but all the others all wanted to be adults. Yes. And they weren't. Yeah. And that came across in the movie. Yeah. Like, it was it was done... It was good writing, but they, they did a great job acting. Yeah, and, and and they talked like kids, calling each other dumbass, and, you know, and, and you know, they were a little smarter, but they were also a bunch of super privileged riches. <laughs> That's true. After her film debut and a brief role in the comedy Encino Man in 1992, McGowan achieved recognition for her performance in the dark comedy The Doom Generation in 95, receiving an Independent Spirit Award nomination for Best Debut Performance. Oh, that's a good movie. That's that's Gregor, part of Gregor Racky's uh, Apocalypse yeah. trilogy. So I think good. it was the first one. I think it was the first one. Yeah. But if you have a chance, if you like uh, uh, really challenging independent <laughs> films, uh, it's really a good movie. Um, and she's great in it. Yeah, yeah. In October 2017, the New York Times reported that McGowan received a $100,000 settlement for movie mogul Harvey Weinstein in relation to an alleged sexual assault in 1997. Ugh. It was alleged that the encounter had taken place in a hotel room during the Sundance Film Festival just a few months after the release of Scream. Time recognized McGowan as one of the Silence Breakers, the magazine's person of the year, for speaking out about sexual assault and harassment, specifically in regard to the Harvey, Harvey Weinstein sexual abuse cases and the Me Too movement. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he ruined was, her. He, he destroyed all, yes. it, so many PT, women, so PTSD, many people. He yeah. ruined them. Yeah. What a monster. That dude should never get out of jail. No. He's got... Ugh. 
Uh, in a 2018 interview with Ronan Farrow, McGowan accused a prominent man in Hollywood of statutory rape, but she did not name the person in question. In August 2020, McGowan announced the man was filmmaker Alexander Payne, claiming that he had sex with her in California when she was 15 years old. Uh, who is it? Alexander Payne has a new movie coming out this month. I... Don't remember what it's called, but I, I was like, oh. Payne responded to McGowan's allegation by writing a guest column in Deadline Hollywood. He acknowledged a consensual relationship but denied any impropriety, stating that they had met when she was over the age of consent, which is 18 in California. Payne ended his statement writing, Well, I can now, well, I can now confirm that I did it. <laughs> While I cannot allow false statements about events 29 years ago to go uncorrected, I will continue to wish only the best for Rose. Uh, Look, he. How old was he when she was eighteen? Too, by the way. I he mean, had to have been in his thirties at least. Gross. It's still I gross. Mean, I mean, just I like this whole like. Well, technically she was legal. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, technically you're a scumbag. Technically you're twice her yes. age. She's seventeen, I, I, but I, she's an old soul. I don't see age, Jim. Yeah, because you're forty <laughs> and she's seventeen. You grosso. Yeah, it's very gross. Look, I don't know anything about the situation, so maybe <laughs> Alexander Payne, she was 20 or whatever, but if the uh, case yeah. was he was in his 30s and she was 18, it's gross. Yeah. Uh, McGowan most, can most recently be seen in documentaries about the pervasive rape culture in Hollywood, and she is a very staunch supporter of gay rights. Yeah. in documentaries. She doesn't, uh, she's actually moved to Mexico. She's not coming back to the U.S. She has fell into some trouble with some drugs and, like... Well, she also just got caught with, you know, it's just, it seems like... It seems like this young woman was extremely damaged by all of this horrible abuse she suffered yes. in Hollywood and within the Hollywood system. And she's having a very difficult time navigating through it. And especially, you know, since she did come forward and, you know, it's not about the credit or whatever, but it's, you know, for years and years, people wouldn't believe her. Well, and, that's what 20 know, years, 20 years, no one, she would tell people and, and they Rowan would be like, Farrow comes out and, and, you know, I'm not disparaging Rowan Farrow at all. What he did was yeah, great. Yeah. But, you know, she lived through this stuff, and she did what, you know, it was very brave of her. People are like, oh, the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement was extremely brave. Yeah. Because yeah. women were blacklisted because yeah. of Harvey Weinstein and, and, and creepo predators like him. Yeah. And so you had to go along to get along, which is just gross. And, you know, and all these people are like, well, why'd you let it happen? Why'd you let it happen? It's like, F you, man. <sighs> Until you're in somebody else's shoes and you're in that position, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Skeet Ulrich was cast as Billy Loomis. Poor, poor, poor Skeet Ulrich. Um, weird thing, I just added this in because I was reading about it before we watched the movie. Uh, when he was six, his father kidnapped him for three years. Yeah, him and his brother. They, they like, went down to Florida, and he, like, had, essentially had them for, until he was nine, then he went back to live with his mom, and then his father disappeared out of his life. Ulrich. Yeah. It, he was he was some race car guy and like went down to Florida and it was super weird. Weird, yeah. Uh, and also, uh, Skeet is short for Skeeter, which was his nickname when he was young because he was very small and fast, like a mosquito. You're like a skater. Look at that little <laughs> skater there. I'm sure it came when he was in Florida. <laughs> sure. Uh, believing it was rising in popularity, Vince Vaughn was the studio's preferred choice for Billy Loomis, but he was too ill to audition. Weird. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means. He also wouldn't have been right for the part. Uh, no, he wouldn't have. I love Vince Vaughn, but it's just it. He, he's more of a of a. You know, if they were going to cast anybody, he would have been Stu. Yeah, you know, I can see more him of the do, Matthew yeah. Lillard. Yeah, yeah, you know. that kind of weird. Yeah, uh, Oldrich did not attend auditions because of scheduling conflicts, but his girlfriend did, and mentioned uh, him, and mentioned that Oldrich brought her. 
uh, producer Beach went out to meet him personally. Hello, Skeet. <laughs> I just wanted to meet somebody named Skeet. <laughs> Never in my life I'm ever going to meet someone named Skeet again. <laughs> uh, Ulrich liked playing a serial killer after more innocent and naive previous roles. Uh, to develop his character, he researched serial murders, psychological profiles, and outfitted one of his hotel rooms to the Billy persona to help him get into character, outfitting it with punk rock posters and black lights. Ooh, edgy. He said... I was into punk music in my teens and really just trying to recapture that angst. I would sit there and read about serial killers and watch Faces of Death. Anything to get into that gory mindset. <laughs> that was eerie. <laughs> that, was, that was creepy. All I had to do was impersonate Johnny Depp because that's what Skeet Ulrich does. <laughs> that's true. That is true. That's the thing. That's why, that's why I said poor, poor Skeet Ulrich because he, unfortunately, he's just the poor man's Johnny Depp. He is. And it's not a, any fault of his own, but he just got that same yeah, voice that and of, that same look, and those the the brooding little bangs that they have didn't help any. <laughs> Framing his face with this. And Skeet Ulrich was great in As Good as It Gets. Yeah. He's a really good actor. He's uh, come into his own recently. You know, as an, I was going to say as an adult, but as an older <laughs> actor, he's yeah. kind of found his niche yeah. playing uh, you know dads and stuff. Uh, Ulrich and Campbell starred together in The Craft, which they believe fostered a natural relationship between their characters. Okay. Uh, Ulrich had uncredited parts in the week in Weekend at Bernie's and the original live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Cowabunga, <laughs> The Craft was his breakout role. Uh, despite being in quite a few films, Ulrich's feature success has been in the Scream franchise, yeah. much like most everybody else in the movie. Well, because they were, a, because it's a collection of TV actors, yeah, yeah. and you know. Uh, People that are hard to classify. Yeah. Let's just say. Yeah. He's found much more success in TV. He was in Miracles in 2003, appearing in all 13 episodes of the show. Uh, that was the only extra work I ever did in Hollywood. Nice. <laughs> Which I was not seen. I got to wear a fireman's costume. It was super fun. I sat inside of a, a giant hangar at LAX for 13 hours. Welcome to the world of being an extra. <sighs> he, he also starred in Jericho in 2006, appearing in 29 episodes. He appeared as Detective Rex Winters in 15 episodes across the Law & Order franchise. Yeah, he was good in that. Jericho, that was like a juggernaut. And then it got canceled and everybody was like, that was one of the first petitioned I, shows that got yeah, brought yeah. back because of a petition. Because I think it ended on a cliffhanger or something. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. I really did not like the show Jericho. Oh, I never saw it. I, never I don't know. I, I don't. I, I just. I, I was. No I idea. was working at Warner Brothers at the time, and like, it, so I was able to see the the screeners and stuff, and I just didn't get why people thought it was so good. I don't. I don't even know what it was about. It was about a nuclear bomb going off in like the Midwest. Oh, it wasn't about the the walls of Jericho coming down. From no, the horn. It was, no, it's just. It was. It was like all mystery. Like, what is you know? It was kind of trying to capture that lost feel right. of like, what's going on? And we don't know. And like, yeah, there's a ton of shows like that yeah. out at that time. Uh, he's most recently appeared in 64 episodes across five seasons of Riverdale. Nice, probably playing a dad. Probably playing the dad. Uh, Matthew Lillard was cast as Stu. Stu. Uh, St- <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Lillard actually auditioned for Billy, but the casting directors did not consider him the right actor to make out with Campbell and had him audition as Stu for Craven, who immediately offered him the part. You want the part? How, <laughs> yeah, I do, man. How awful for them to be like, look, we like what you're doing, but no one believes you would be able to make out with Nev Campbell. Look, Matthew, you're way too gross to make out with the lead actor. So we're going to give you the goof part. And Nev Campbell's like, look at his tongue. I want to make out with him. What are you talking about? Yeah, you know, he was uh, the the boyfriend of uh, Rose McGowan. 
Yeah. After high school, Lillard was co-host of a short-lived TV show called Skate TV with a number eight. Yeah, he was a skater. That's how he... uh, one of the reasons why he got the uh, part in SLC Punk, which yeah. is such a great movie. Yeah. If you haven't seen SLC Punk, it is a great little indie movie about uh, a bunch of punks living in Utah and they're yeah. Mormons. Like it's Salt Lake City and yeah. super – it's a great movie. It's, it's a really, really good – and he is fantastic. So good in that movie. Uh, afterwards, after doing his short-lived TV show, he was hired as an extra in Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College in 1991. Yeah, the Ghoulies. In 1994, he was cast in the John Waters Black comedy Serial Mom. Yeah, he was great. He was uh, the son of of Mm. Serial Mom, played by Kathleen Turner as the mom. Yeah, Serial Mom's great. It's a funny movie. I love John Waters. Uh, The following year, he was cast in five films, including Hackers, a thriller about a group of high school kids who thwart a multi-million dollar corporate extortion conspiracy. That was uh, Angelina Jolie's debut. Yeah. In 2002, Lillard was cast as Shaggy in the live-action Scooby-Doo film. Hey, Scoob! He also appeared as Shaggy in Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. Oh, here come the monsters! Which, funny enough, I literally watched like a week ago. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Phoebe wanted to watch it. That's the one with Seth Green. I don't think I'd ever seen it. Yeah. Uh. I don't think I'd ever seen it. It It was actually pretty fun. It's it's the most accurate to the original cartoon. Yeah, like the Scooby Doo. Where are you? Like it's it's a live action version of that. It's so good. Yeah, it was fun. That's the Monster Island one. Yeah, right? yeah. When Casey Kasem retired from voicing Shaggy in 2009, Lillard would step in and voice Shaggy in 25 animated films through 2023. Well, I'm tired. <laughs> in October 2005, he participated in a Dungeons and Dragons tournament against members of the Quest Club gaming organization at the Magic Castle in Hollywood, California. Lillard was one of the co-founders of Beetle and Grimm's, a company that publishes licensed expanded products, usually of a limited edition from Wizards of the Coast games, including Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering. Oh, yeah. They make uh, custom dice. They make custom all sorts of stuff. They also have a series of whiskeys that they're going to be releasing that each has a story uh, that you can use for your Dungeons and Dragons campaigns as you drink the whiskey. Wow, that's and cool. Each one is uniquely different towards. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it sounds like so much fun. Yeah, uh, Lillard also appeared in 34 episodes of the TV show Good Girls from 2018 to 2021, and will be seen in the upcoming film adaptation of the video game Five Night at Freddy's. Yeah, he was also on. Uh, it was either Bosch or the Bosch Legacy. I can't remember which one. I think it was oh, Bosch. Yeah, yeah. But playing like a, a FBI agent and got an awesome cop stash. Nice. He's really also moved into uh, playing these older yeah. cop roles or, or dad roles or whatever. Uh, but yeah. again, you know, not only still working and acting, but has this awesome Dungeons and Dragons yeah. based company. Yeah. I just love him so, so much. Jamie Kennedy was cast as Randy Meeks. Oh Seth Green, Jason Lee, and Brecken Meyer were all preferred for Randy. Uh, the lanky, gangly, opinionated fifth wheel who really has a love and passion for movies. Uh, but Craven and Williamson appreciated the innocence and comedy Kennedy brought to his portrayal. Uh, Kennedy credited Craven for supporting his casting. I get it. I he was fine. He he was he was good in this part. He was good. I Seth Green would have been of those three. Seth Green would have been the most. Brickenmeyer, I just find highly annoying. Really, I don't know why. There's just something about him. I that get I just it. Find highly annoying. I like Brickenmeyer from Robot Chicken that he does with Seth Green. Uh, yeah, and 
He, I, he and Seth Green are like best friends. <laughs> it's just his face. It I sounds get it. so awful. No, I get it. But it's I, but he was hilarious. It's funny because he seems to only do stuff with Seth Green because he did he does uh, Robot Chicken, and he did that. <laughs> he and Seth were in the Josie the Pussycats movie. Oh yeah, which is yeah. super underrated if you oh, haven't my God. seen. It is such a good movie. A great cult flick. Uh, and then he just did this movie about two like best friends going to Thailand or something oh. with he and Seth Green. Weird. It just seems like okay. they've been best buds forever. Maybe I'll give Breckenmeyer another chance. You know me and friendship, how much I love it, <laughs> except for my own. Uh, no, but you know how I love <laughs> I'm, just I'm literally right here. <laughs> but you know how much I love friendship, and I think that the – and I love like – best buds in Hollywood that yeah. do work together and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. He would have been fine. I think of the three of those, Seth Green, Jason Lee, and Breckenmeyer, I think that Jason Lee is probably the, the worst casting. Oh, he's only too, because he's just a skater boy. He's, he's not a nerd. Too, he seems like he's just high all the time. Yeah. And it doesn't have that kind of energy. When Kennedy first arrived in Los Angeles, he became a professional Hollywood extra because that's what you do when you can't get parts. Okay. I used to do extra work. And he is the epitome of the typical annoying, awful extra <laughs> that you don't want to be paired with when you got to do your day's work. Yeah. Because he's the guy that's going to be like, I've got scripts and I've got this and I've got this and here's my headshot and I'm a dee ba dee And then he's yeah. just the most deluded people. But hey, he made it. But it just, I couldn't imagine working with him. After a few years of struggling, Kennedy was unable to find an agent and worked as a host at Red Lobster. He auditioned for over 80 commercials and could not book a single one. He then took a job as a telemarketer and learned that he had a talent for selling things. Okay, then he should have stayed. <laughs> Kennedy then thought that if he could sell anything... Why not sell myself? Becoming his own agent. Kennedy created a false persona, screen agent Marty Power, to attract the attention of real agents and managers over the phone who would later book his performances. Uh, he's like Donald Trump. <laughs> Making up his publicist. Marty Power. Marty Power. Hey, hey, Marty Power here. Uh, I got this great kid, uh, Jamie Kennedy. Uh, No relation. But you should really check him out. He's a hilarious guy. He's pretty good looking. (laughs) Can I send him in for an audition? Jamie, (laughs) is this you? We told you to stop calling. No, this is Marty Power. I don't know who this Jamie Kennedy is. I mean, he's my client. I don't know who he is. (laughs) Jamie, just stop. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. His lead role as Tim Avery in Son of the Mask in 2005 earned him a Golden Raspberry Award nomination for Worst Actor. What was the thinking behind that movie? I don't... It's because of that one shot where he's talking at the beginning, they're sitting by the fountain or whatever, and he makes that face, and it looks just like the mask. That's why? That's literally why they cast him in that movie, and they got him. I don't know. Somebody thought that, oh, Jimmy Kennedy's going to be the next big thing. Was, was, it, actually, was it Marty Power? He was doing was a lot of the guy? stuff around this time. He was doing <laughs> other stuff around this time. No, Jamie had a very decent career. You know, you got to give him props. Hey, self-made dude, Marty Power, he got yeah. his, you know, he, he had the, where, where he lacked in talent, he made up for in gumption. And he was really good in this part. Look, he was. You know, he it's was. annoying. This character was annoying, and they picked up the perfect guy to play him. Yeah. Uh, He would later voice his experiences with the film Son of the Mask on his YouTube channel in in the later years after its release. The film would go on to inspire Kennedy to host the 2007 documentary Heckler after feeling hurt by the film's poor reception in which some reviewers attacked him personally. (laughs) Well, 
Okay. Kennedy formed a production company called Wannabe Producers, through which he has produced some TV shows. The Jamie Kennedy Experiment, which debuted to record audiences for the WB when it premiered in 2002. Ugh, prank shows. Canceled after two seasons due to declining membership or viewership. Yeah, because you can't spend that much time with Jamie Kennedy. I'm yeah. sorry. He's uh, yeah. he's a he's a 90-minute guy. You could <laughs> you get like five good scenes with him in a movie and that's just enough Jamie Kennedy. He also produced The Starlet, a 2005 reality show about 10 young actresses living together in a home formerly owned by Marilyn Monroe while competing in a series of acting challenges for the chance to win a role on the WB drama One Tree Hill and a management contract with Three Arts Entertainment. Okay. That was Literally the season before I started working on the show. Uh, it just seems like a way for him to meet ladies. Uh, yep. Uh, Blown Up, he also produced a reality show in 2006 that followed Kennedy trying to become a rapper. Following the success, success, following the success of Malibu's Most Wanted, written and starring Kennedy in 2003. And yes, he did release a rap album. Was that movie a success? It actually made a lot of money. It did. And it and actually is the reason that he got all of these other TV shows. I swear to God, it made money. It makes me sad to think, but it was it actually made some pretty good money. Okay. Well, yeah. good for him, man. Good for Jamie Kennedy. Again, I guess broken clock right twice a day. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, look, I, I, I'm essing on him a lot, but, you know, the guy's had a decent career. He still works. He was just in the Tremors movies, right? Playing. Yeah. The the five and six, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, uh, he also produced Living with Fran, created by David Garrett, produced by him, him and starring Fan, Fran Drescher and Ryan McPartland. It was a sitcom. Uh, it did not last very long. I never even heard of it. Uh, I remember that when it came on because I was like, they gave her another show? Really? But You don't like Fran Drescher? I, it's just her voice. And She's I know the president it's, I know SAG, it's a Adam. character. I'm not an actor. She's my leader. <laughs> well, I'm not an actor. <laughs> Uh, Kennedy lent his voice to the video game ESPN NFL 2K5 as a celebrity adversary with his own football team, the Upper Darby Cheese Stakes. Oh, God. He is also unlockable as a free agent tight end in season mode. His stint as Activision's MC, it gets better, his stint as Activision's MC at Electronic Entertainment Expo 2007, however, drew much criticism, not only for his ignorance of the industry, but also for appearing to perform drunk as he insulted the audience. Uh, you guys all play Pong? I, I just, I played Pong. It's stupid. It, I was in Scream. I was in Scream. I was in Scream. In a video uploaded to YouTube on June 14th, 2021, that a clip from that video. Kennedy claimed that Activision had scrapped his script at the last minute and he was ad-libbing his jokes while suffering from burnout. Okay. That sounds like a lot of excuses for being drunk and unprepared burnout from not having any other work (laughs) from being an (laughs) a-hole from 2008 this is the most amazing thing from 2008 to 2010 kennedy played psychology professor eli james and the cbs drama ghost whisperer and he pulled off perhaps his greatest trick he dated jennifer love hewitt for a year while filming the show it was so weird everybody was so uncomfortable even he was uncomfortable about it it just like i nobody got it he he didn't even get it, and it just seems so. It was every day he'd wake up and go like, "This is really happening. Is this real? Yeah. Am I being punked? Am I on Jamie Kennedy's experiment? Has she found the secret potion that I'm seducing her with? Yeah. It was he? Did he learn hypno- hypnosis and it finally know. wore off? I think it says more about Jennifer Love Hewitt. And to be honest, I had a huge crush on her when I was young, and now not so much. Oh, poor Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> I just feel like. 
you know, he might just be a really nice guy. And I, you know, I'm sure he probably he's is. not the worst. And he like like we said, he was really good in this role. He did a really good job in this role. Well, he's still acting. Uh, Kennedy played narrow pro-choice America founder Larry Later in the 2020 film Roe v. Wade, which stars a predominantly conservative ensemble cast. Yeah, I was going to say, why didn't I hear anything about this? In an interview with the Daily Beast, which noted the film depicts later as a shady figure pulling strings from behind the scenes who treats abortions as a money-making operation. Kennedy said he appeared in the film to perform in a dramatic role that he's not normally offered and personally identifies as pro-choice and that it's also not fair for people to think that because I'm in a project with them that I'm like that or that I believe in that stuff. Well, you know what, Jamie? When you lend yourself to that and you're in it, then people are going to think that you support it. You're old. I'm just getting a paycheck, and I wanted to play. Oh, I wanted to play a different kind of part, even though you know, go be in another right wing effing movie, Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> Nobody has any. I, I've lost all sympathy <laughs> for Jamie Kennedy now. I'm angry. Wow, that was just a roller coaster with Jamie oh, Kennedy. Oh, Jamie. Woo. Uh, w. Earl Brown was cast as Kenny Jones, Gale's cameraman. Now, this is a guy that I love. Again, a journeyman character yeah. actor that I cannot believe that you that 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 he was in something about Mary. I know. Uh, w. Earl Brown and Craven were friends, and he was not required to audition, but did have to gain about twenty pounds. Those are the best. <laughs> the best roles is when it's like, okay, you're gonna have to gain some weight. Hey, so got a part for you? Uh, I did a part. And I, I mentioned this before, but I did this feature that we shot for a, a long period of time where I played a guy in his 20s and in his 40s. And when he was in his 40s, I had to gain a bunch of weight. I don't have to like, gain or lose 30 pounds within a week or so. Ugh. It was crazy. That's extremely unhealthy. Well, when you're young, it's not it's as still unhealthy. It's still unhealthy. <laughs> but I'll tell you, the gaining part was super fun because <laughs> I did the old uh, Russell Crowe. Whiskey and cheeseburgers. cheeseburgers. Does that get your piece all puffy for the yeah. next day? Uh, but yeah, it was not as much fun to lose it. Uh, Brown originally wanted to portray Dewey. He he was hoping for that part. He would have been great. Apparently, oh, he would have been fantastic. Brown appeared in films such as Backdraft in 1991, The Babe in 1992, Excessive Force, and Rookie of the Year in 1993. Uh, that same year, he moved to Los Angeles and was cast in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. He also had a minor role in Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn in 1995. And this is what blows me away. Yeah, me too. He played Warren in the 1998 comedy film There's Something About Mary. Frank Side Beans! Frank Side Beans! Frank Side Beans! You don't remember, <laughs> that was Warren. <laughs> like, it blows my mind. Yeah. I, he is so good. Such it, a good actor. It was such a good performance that I thought that the actor may have been I, mentally challenged. That, I, that, as far as I knew, was the first time I had seen him. And that is a compliment because it wasn't a... It was a very nuanced and respectful performance of somebody with mental disabilities. His, his relationship with, um, yeah, Stiller, with Stiller, Stiller was was really great. Yeah. Like, it, they played... It was good. Like, you could see the arc of him getting to like him. And, like, it was such a good performance. It was a great performance. W. Earl Brown is extremely yeah. underrated. He's one of my favorite. He was in The Last of Us video game. He yeah. was the original Bill, who mm-hmm. was uh, portrayed in the series by Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman. Mm-hmm. Um, such a great performance, a very great nuanced performance in that game. Uh, Deadwood. I mean, I know you're going to mention all this stuff. Yeah, I got a whole bunch to go through <laughs> okay, here. Okay, sorry. <laughs> he later took roles in Being John Malkovich, Vanilla Sky, Dancing at the Blue Iguana, The Alamo, and The Big White. Uh, Brown also writes and performs with the country music band Sacred Cowboys. You. 
In 2009, Brown wrote, produced, and appeared in the film Bloodworth, starring Val Kilmer, Chris Christopherson, and Dwight Yoakam, about a washed-up musician that has to come to terms with the family he left 40 years prior. Interesting. Uh, And his 2010's film credits include... The Master, The Sessions, The Lone Ranger, Brothers Keeper, and Wild. On television, he is best known for his portrayal of Dan Doherty on the HBO series Deadwood. Deadwood. He also guest starred on... Pete's Motel, Rectify, Luck, American Horror Story, Justified, Six Feet Under, NYPD Blue, X-Files, The Mentalist, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Ellen, Seinfeld, and True Detective. He is such a good character actor that I literally don't recognize him most of the time. Oh, yeah. And he just blends in perfectly and doesn't stand out, and he does exactly what a good character actor does, and he serves the project impeccably. He also portrayed singer Meatloaf in VH1's television film Meatloaf to Hell and Back. I can see it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then The Last of Us, obviously, he played Bill, which I had no idea. Again, it was the same guy. Really? No idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, the name, like, I see the name, and I don't really, you know, it's like, uh, he, he's a character actor. Ever since Deadwood, I've really paid attention to his career. Yeah. He most recently appeared in the Peacock documentary, Paul T. Goldman, and in the Western film, The Dead Don't Hurt, written, directed, produced, composed, and starring Vigo Mortensen. <laughs> the Paul T. Goldman thing was crazy. It was really Such weird. Such a weird, bizarre really show. Weird. Highly recommend it, because it's super weird. Yeah. I'm still not convinced it was totally real. Uh, who Maybe knows? Maybe because it wasn't, but, but it, it was. was. Uh, but I had no idea he was in it. I, yeah. I still don't remember who he was. I don't either. He must have just been playing himself. Probably. I, he might because they had a lot of actors come in. A guy that I was on stage with doing the um, Night of the Living Dead was in it. Yes. As, as yes. An, he actually was an actor. He played. He had a really good accent. He did a really good job. Nice. The film also stars Liev Schreiber as Cotton Weary. Stars? Question mark? Well, the film also has. <laughs> sorry. Uh, Schreiber took the part of Cotton Weary for $20,000 during an unrelated meeting with Bob Weinstein. Well, because there's no lines or anything. No, it's just, it's just one, one shot. shot of him coming out of the, or whatever, yeah. But good for him, because he gets to be yeah. in the second one. And he got twenty grand. yeah. And he's, he's, he's really good in the second one. Yeah. Liev Schreiber is a great actor. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking, this is a little bit off topic, but it's not, because we're talking about Liev Schreiber. We were talking, uh... When we were watching Ahsoka, that with the unfortunate passing of Ray Stevenson, which is just tragic because he was yeah, so good on that show. So great in that show. That if they need to recast, they should get Lee F. Schreiber. Yeah. He's got the gravitas. He's got the bulk. He's, you know, he's just got that. He's great. Yeah. He's great. And he, and he is really good in, in part two. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah he's yeah. just such a scumbag. Yeah. Uh, Come on. I need to get some money. Come on, Sydney. Take an interview with me. Roger L. Jackson is the voice of Ghostface. What's your favorite scary movie? Jackson was hired based on his voice work for Mars Attacks. He literally played all the aliens. He recounted overhearing his competitors discussing the Ghostface as the new Freddy Krueger, but Jackson interpreted as a more subtle role, which required charisma and sexiness to keep his target on the phone, even though they want to hang up. Well, yeah, you can't. A, the only one who speaks is Freddy Krueger. <laughs> right. Bunch. So. True. Uh, Barrymore wanted someone to act against in her scene instead of the character's lines being read to her. And while the filmmakers intended to dub over Jackson's voice with Tom Kane, a veteran voice actor, Craven liked his performance and kept it in the movie. Henry Winkler was cast as Principal Himbry. Oh, the Fonz. Oh, the Fonz. He's great in this, too. Yeah, the Fonz. Uh, he shared an agent with Craven and made his cameo appearance as a favor. It's nice. He looks so young and slim. 
Yeah, and he's his one scene where he keeps scaring himself is so funny. It is hilarious. He's so great. I just love him. He is an American treasure. He is the he, definition yeah. of American treasure. He is. Linda Blair from The Exorcist was cast as an obnoxious reporter, and uh, she just has no lines. She does. Just, oh, no, she does. You're right. She does, Sorry. and she is obnoxious. She is. She's great. Uh, Craven himself makes a cameo as a janitor that wears a sweater and hat, very similar to Freddy Krueger. We talking to me. Called Fred. No, no I'm not, not you, to you, Fred. Not you, Fred. Go back to mopping your mop. Not you, Fred. E and the Futs. Uh, and I do want to point out Francis Lee McLean as Mrs. Riley, Dewey, and Tatum's mom, yeah. who was the mom from Gremlins. Exactly. I recognized her. Didn't even realize it was her. So it was predetermined early on that Scream required too many different interior and exterior locations to be filmed on sets. Santa Rosa in Sonoma County, California, offered most features the filmmakers required, but Harvey Weinstein rejected the additional $1 to $2 million required to film there until the filmmakers convinced him that Craven's name would attract enough audiences to compensate for the added cost. Ugh, it must have been horrible working with that douche. I can't even imagine. Ten days of filming were to take place at Santa Rosa High School in early June at a cost of up to $50,000, but permission was revoked just before filming began in March by the Santa Rosa District. The change was ostensibly because of the disruption filming would cause during school hours, but locals also protested against the use of the school in a violent film and Craven's horror film legacy. What about the children? The Sonoma Community Center served as a replacement, but scenes had to be rewritten to accommodate the new location and additional costs to transform the former elementary school into one appropriate for young adults, including larger desks and installing lockers. Craven estimated the disruption and location changes caused by the Santa Rosa District's decision cost the production $350,000, including the $270,000 the center was paid for three days of filming. Good Lord. That's well, a lot. Yeah, but look at that area, man. It's a I, very rich yes. area. They could ask for whatever they want. <laughs> The disruption to filming by the school was not forgotten, with the film's credits stating, No thanks whatsoever to the Santa Rosa City School District governing board. Poop on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, poop on them. They cost yeah. them a lot of money. Cost them a lot of money. Williamson only described Ghostface as Ghostface Killer. Producer Madalena discovered a mask while uh, location scouting and was immediately taken in by it. The design, featuring a white shroud, was designed by Br Bridget Slyerton as the peanut-eyed ghost for the novelty company Fun World in 1991. Craven asked Dimension to license the design, but Fun World's price was steep, and the studio also wanted full ownership of the mask. Special effects company KNB Effects Group was commissioned to create similar but legally distinct alternatives. Dozens of designs were developed, resulting in gargoyleish witch and goblin-like masks. The filmmakers did not like the replacements and made a version close to the Fun World design, but with minor changes such as stretching the nose and chin to avoid copyright issues. Did you notice that the masks that were used in in as the fake masks that like the one that uh, uh, the principal put mm -hmm. on? Were, was completely different than the original mask. Oh, were they? Yeah, it wasn't as long. Oh. The eyes were different, so it was like it distinguished yeah, itself from yeah. the actual mask. The killer was given a black shroud to avoid their clothing or movements hinting at their identity. Uh, the wine scenes weren't especially happy with the dailies they saw from Craven during production, calling his work "workman like at best." <sighs> they sent Craven dailies from the movie Night Watch, starring Ewan McGregor, as an example of what they wanted. Hey, look at this movie that everybody's going to forget about two seconds after it comes out, and do it like that. They hated the opening with Barrymore and wanted to reshoot it or cancel the entire project. Let's just cancel it. Craven cut the whole scene together to show how it would work, and afterward, Bob Weinstein told the filmmakers, What do I know about dailies? Keep going. At least he's the better Weinstein. <sighs> yeah. It's, well, it's an easy 
It's, it's not the easiest hard. thing it's in the world is being be the better one. Better than Harvey. Scream was rated NC-17 by the Motion Picture Association of America, restricting its audience to those over 17 years of age, which was considered box office suicide by industry experts. The MPAA told Craven that Scream would never receive a more commercial R rating, allowing younger people to see the film when accompanied by an adult. What? Craven said, I'm a director who can do something very well, but I'm not allowed to put it on screen. And they ultimately get you, as they did on this one, on intensity. They say, it's not a specific shot. It's not blood. It's just too intense. The filmmakers eventually convinced the MPAA that Scream was a spoof, believing they were too focused on the horror aspects. But what? It, it took up to nine cuts to address the MPAA's, MPAA's complaints, including removing any movement of the victim's internal organs, trimming Kenny's throat being slit because the actor's pain expression was too disturbing. Way to go, bub. <laughs> moving Billy and Stu stabbing each other off screen and reducing scenes of Casey's hanging body and Tatum's crushed head. The slow motion stabbing of Casey was considered too brutal, but was allowed with only a few frames removed because there was no alternate footage to use. Okay. The final cut runs for 111 minutes. So the MPA, like most times, was wrong. <laughs> well, yeah. I, and it was very... It was a weird time, too, back then, because it yeah. was still really uh, conservative. Yeah. You know, always erring yeah. on the side of wrongness. <laughs> uh, look, the MPAA is a joke. It always has been. I mean, uh, uh, Psycho proved that. Oh, yeah. With Hitchcock literally saying, we can't do this. It, her getting murdered. We can't do anything. He sat on it for two weeks and sent it back. And they go, okay, great. Well, they're, it's, they're just, it's, it's a joke. Yeah, just a bunch of people trying to get heard. Yeah. Bob Weinstein opted to release Scream in December as counter-programming, offering teenagers as an alternative to more traditional holiday fare. The decision was unpopular with the cast and crew, with Williamson expecting the film to fail. Weinstein explained, People said we were crazy to put out Scream over Christmas. It was a thriller. It didn't have big stars. It couldn't compete. Well, after Beavis and Butthead, where is that audience going to go? Yeah. Sure. During its opening weekend, the film grossed $6.4 million across 1,413 theaters, making it the fourth highest-grossing film of the weekend behind 101 Dalmatians at $7 million, Jerry Maguire at $13.1 million. Show me the money! And the debut of Beavis and Butthead to America at $20.1 million. Yeah. The performance was considered a failure by industry professionals, resulting in variety labeling scream, Dead on arrival! Madalena recounted herself in Craving, observing a raucous audience for Beavis and Butthead to America, while Scream had, Maybe seven people in there. No one was laughing or screaming. We went away so dejected. However, Scream received positive audience word of mouth and exit polling responses, leading the studio to increase the marketing and distribution budget. This contributed to Scream's performance improving in the following weeks. Although it fell to fifth place in its second weekend, it increased its weekend gross to $9.1 million, and again in its third weekend, rising to third place with $10 million. Also, and strangely enough, the soundtrack really helped propel that as well. Yeah. I remember going after seeing the movie, going into Tower Records to one of their listening stations and listening to the, the CD. The CD. Nice. Scream remained in the top 10 highest grossing films for nine weeks in total, becoming a surpri surprise success and grossing a total of $103 million. It's really rare for something to open fifth or fourth. Yeah. And it's just such a low, you know, yeah. opening to, to steadily gain 
And I don't uh, think it ever actually was number one. That's no, but it, but it it kept it increasing its yeah, yeah because it it grossed more and more each week. Even though it didn't hit number one, it right. still made more money than it did the previous week. I think the best week it had was over ten million. Yeah, the figure this figure made it the number thirteen highest grossing film of nineteen ninety six and highest grossing slasher film of its time until Halloween came out in two thousand eighteen. It's a good run. Uh, it was Miramax's second film to gross $100 million in the United States and Canada after Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Uh, it would end up grossing a cumulative worldwide total of $173 million, making it the number 15 highest grossing film worldwide of the year. The success of Scream resulted in additional financial compensation for the principal crew and cast, triggering by the, triggered by the box office surpassing $40 million and subsequent increments of $10 million up to $100 million. Kennedy noted that his first residual check was double his actual salary. Yeah, his actual salary is 40 bucks. Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, critics such as Roger Ebert, James Berardinelli, and Owen Gleiberman praised Scream's meta-commentary about its horror predecessors and its self-referential humor, while also writing that the self-parody diluted any suspense and criticizing the excessive violence. I don't agree. Yeah. I don't agree with the second part of that. I think yeah. it was very suspenseful. I think it was... Oh, totally. It's, it's one of the most, like, nerve-wracking... Horror films because there's just so much. I mean, energy to it. You're literally trying to figure out who's who the killer is the yeah, entire movie. Exactly. It's just the humor and stuff gives you a breath. It gives yeah. you a moment yeah, exactly. to, to catch yourself. And it makes the the more intense stuff much more intense and also more believable because that's how people talk. And it just Agreed. shows what sociopaths teenagers are. <laughs> Studios rushed to capitalize on Scream's success with teen-centric horror films and television series leading into the 2000s, such as I Know What You Did Last Summer in 1997. Urban Legend in 1998 and Cherry Falls in 2000, as well as sequels to popular but diminished franchises such as Halloween H2O 20 years later and Bride of Chucky, both released in 1998. H2O is pretty good. That has uh, LL Cool J mm-hmm. in it. I think he survives. Yeah, I think so. He's like the awesome survivor of horror movies. This and and uh, Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scream also serves as the subject of the parody film Scary Movie, released in 2000, which in turn launched its own franchise of horror spoofs. Yeah, and they used the original title, Scary Movie. Director Jordan Peele has credited Scream as a direct inspiration for his own influential horror film Get Out, released in 2017, in manipulating the audience's expectations of the modern horror genre. There have been five sequels in a TV show so far. Scream 2, which was released less than a year later on December 12th, 1997, written by Williamson and directed by Craven, starring Nev Campbell. That was good. That was when they were in college. Uh, and they introduced, yeah. uh, oh, and they killed off Randy. They did. Uh, Randy didn't Van- make it. Randy yeah. and a Vandy. And then he his did. sister comes and is like, I'm a much better actor. Remember <laughs> me from Welcome to the Dollhouse? <laughs> the script was actually leaked during production and extensive rewrites happened to ensure a surprise ending. Uh, it would eventually gross $172 million. Scream 3 was released February 4th, 2000. Uh, the film was not written by Williamson, as he was very busy after the success of the first two Scream movies. Plus, we were all reeling from Y2K and, and how everything got destroyed. The computers didn't know, Adam. They didn't know they how didn't to know. go from 99 yeah. to 2000. It was going to ruin the crazy. world. Yeah. Uh, Scream 3 was written by Aaron Kruger and directed by Wes Craven. Uh, Scream 3, Scream 2 was also directed by Wes Craven. I don't know if I said that. Scream 3 was less successful than the previous two installments, still grossing over $161 million, but with commentators noting that the film had become akin to the horror films it originally parodied in Scream and Scream 2. I wouldn't go that far, but it wasn't as strong as the first two. No, it definitely wasn't. Others were critical of the change in tone, focusing more on humor instead of horror and violence. 
However, critics who reacted positively were supportive of this change in tone and praised the film for successfully completing the film trilogy. It's a successful trilogy. It's a good trilogy. Yeah. And they could have ended right there. It could have. Except it didn't. Scream 4 was released on April 15th, 2011, all of 11 years later. Uh, Craven and Williamson returned to work on the film as well as Nev, as Nev Campbell. Word of mouth was that an early test screening didn't go well and reshoots were done to change the ending. It would only gross around $97 million. Yeah. In 2015, the Scream TV show was released, running for three seasons on MTV and then VH1 for the last season. I don't think I ever saw any of that. Yeah, I didn't. Well, mainly the reason, and I'll explain this. It was originally announced that Wes Craven was going to direct the pilot, but he opted not to. They didn't use the ghost face mask, as Miramax wouldn't license the rights to the mask for the show. Dicks. Their own property. They wouldn't license the right to the mask. Well, there's Harvey for you. The show is not connected to the film series at all. I just remember them definitely like that being a thing. And I was like, well, if the ghost face mask isn't in it, then it's not Scream. You might as well just call it something else. Well, it's basically, do you remember the Friday the 13th series? It was just an anthology right, series. Right. It had nothing to do. But this, was, but this was a guy in a mask killing people. I mean, it was literally just a different mask. All right. Well, it seems dumb. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wes Craven would end up passing from brain cancer shortly after the show premiered that summer. So sad. Yeah. We lost the master of horror. Yeah. In November 2019, Spyglass Media Group acquired the rights to make a new Scream film. It was unknown at the time if it would be a sequel, a reboot, or a remake. It was also unknown if Williamson would return. The next month, it was announced that the film would feature a new cast and could possibly feature appearances from previous main cast members who, who are still alive. Uh, the movie was it, from the series. Oh, right. I, I mean, like, who died? No, no, no. From, you know, that weren't killed off during the series. The movie was directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpen and Tyler Gillett and written by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. Uh, Williamson was not involved, but the movie did feature Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Nev Campbell, along with newcomers Melissa Barrera, Mason Gooding, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, and Marley Shelton. Only thing I remember is that Jack Quaid was the killer, or one of the killers. Spoiler. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> uh, it was released January 14th, 2022, and was titled Scream, because why not? Uh, although billed as a reboot of the film series, the film is, in fact, a direct sequel to Scream 4. Uh, it would end up grossing $138.9 million from a $24 million budget. That's not bad. Um, I d I, yeah. I mean, honestly, what you said about Jack Quaid is pretty much what I remember, too, from the series, but... Uh, uh, Scream 6, also directed by Matt Bettinelli, Olpen, and Tyler Gillett, with a script from James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick, was released March 10th, 2023. The film also features Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, Mason Gooding, Hayden Panettiere, and Courtney Cox, all reprising the roles from previous installments. Yeah. Uh, Nev Campbell did not reprise her role as Sidney Prescott due to a pay dispute, making this the first Scream film to not feature her. And it was noticed. Yeah. The actress made a statement about her contract and salary negotiations had stalled with Paramount, and she said, As a woman, I have had to work extremely hard in my career to establish my value, especially when it comes to Scream. I felt that the offer that was presented to me did not equate to the value I have brought to the franchise, and I agree with her 100 effing percent. They should have given She's her Ripley she from yeah. Alien. Yeah. She's the heart and the soul of that uh, series. She, Everything. Yeah. Everything revolves around her and her family, and without that and without her, then Scream is, it's Jaws without a shark. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's pointless. I agree. I agree. Uh, the movie takes place in New York City, with a ghost-faced killer stalking survivors of the Woodsboro Legacy murders. It would end up grossing $169 million, which of course means there will be another movie. Well, hopefully they'll... 
bring back Nev and and learn their lesson. The, the two directors have said they're, they're going to be producing the, the seventh movie. They're not directing it, but uh, they have said that they really hope they can get her to come back. Yeah. And like, like whatever she's going to need. So. It was, it was, uh, it was a different movie. At, at least they, you know, took it, taking it to New York was weird. Yeah. It was just, it wasn't bad. It was just kind of I, I, forgettable. Honestly, Didn't I don't remember it. I, I still haven't seen it yet, but I, I plan on watching it because I am going to watch all of these again uh, after watching the original. Yeah. I'm really excited to, to see two and three again. Uh, it was out in August, 2023. It was announced Christopher Landon, the son of Michael Landon was set to direct scream seven. Uh, Landon worked on the, Paranormal Activity film series, writing Paranormal Activity 2, 3, 4, and Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. Landon also directed the and wrote the franchise spinoff, Paranormal Activity The Marked Ones, which was released in 2014. Okay. None of that makes me excited. No. Except for the fact that he also wrote and directed Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Those are great. Which I did not realize was Michael Landon's son. Yeah. No, that's great. But those were both very well done movies. Yeah, never a big fan of the Paranormal Activity series. The first no. one was interesting, but I just I, I I'm I'm not a found footage guy. Yeah. I found I that genre lost its uh, appeal to me pretty quickly. Um, I hated that first movie so much. Which it was movie? The first Paranormal Activity. Oh yeah. It was just the fact that the that the, the the dad like he's literally watching a door bang open and close and he's like I don't know yeah. it might be the wind. And it's that's like, the no, stupidest trope no, too. The no. the everything is in your face and you still don't believe it. Well, how did you stack all those chairs up like that? You're pretty nimble. Yeah. Dumb. No. I I get that he shot it for like ten grand and like I'm happy for the guy that shot it and he has a career but like it was just I you uh, I totally forgot that Timothy Oliphant I think he's in is he in Scream two or three I don't know he's no he's two he's the killer is he? two yeah he, see this is why I need to watch him again he, I I think it's either two or three that he and Laurie Metcalf and I think Timothy Oliphant were like mother and daughter. And, uh, yeah, mother and daughter, sorry, mother and son, sorry, <laughs> Timothy, son. you're one of my favorite actors of all time, but yeah, uh, that's he, right. That's, I totally forgot about that because it was super weird. And they're like, they're like, but they're not mother and son, like, cause they end something. up like making out or something. Yeah. And they're like, what? It's all like, it weird. Was super weird. Yeah. It, uh, I always forget was that, that, the, that was the second or third movie. I think it was the second one because the, yeah, it was the second one because the third one was the illegitimate son of Sidney Prescott, <laughs> right? Like her half-brother like, in Hollywood that came to kill her. Uh, yeah, yeah, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. Um, God, I also had Sarah Michelle Gellar in it. Yeah. And Jada Pinkett Smith. Man, I Luke Wilson? I, uh, well, Jada Pinkett, Jada Pinkett Smith was the... Jerry O'Connell. Yeah, he was a douche. Yeah, um, but Jada Pinkett Smith, she was the Drew Barrymore. She was they were at the premiere of That's Scream right. at the beginning. That's right. Her and uh, and Omar Epps, they go to the premiere of Stab, right. Stab, Stab Three or whatever at and that then, time. Yeah, like he goes to the bathroom and then she gets stabbed right. and walks up on. It's really dumb. <laughs> it is dumb. But she like walks all the way because everybody you know is dressed yeah. up and yeah. is the is the guy and they stab her a bunch of times and she's like ah, and walks right. up on the thing is like. Right. Ah, she walks all the way down and then gets in the stage. front of the, it's like, okay. And it's like, look at me, I'm dying. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. But, but I do want to rewatch these movies because, like I said, I haven't seen the sixth one yet. And I, 
barely remember four and five. Like I four, I don't remember at all. There was one where the climax took place in a barn, and everybody's watching a movie. And yeah, yeah, and they had I all think these that cameras the up. I think one. that's the fourth I think that's one. The fourth one. Uh, you had Hayden Panettiere, and you yes, had yes. Uh, Emma she was, Roberts. She was in the fourth one. Yeah, was in it. Um, I I yeah. Ron Perlman was in one of them as Governor yeah, Starks. I mean, it's huge, yeah. I mean, he, like, it's a it's a great franchise. It holds up despite the fact that some of the movies are a little suspect, but like, it's it's still better than most of what was being put out. Yes, and uh, Heather Mazzarino is that how you say your name? She's the one from Welcome to the Dollhouse that played Randy's sister. Yeah, Mata Mata Mazzarino. I'm Mata so sorry, Heather. I don't um, know how to yeah. pronounce your name, but she is. Welcome, if you haven't seen Welcome to the Dollhouse, so holy ass. Yep. That is such an effed up movie. <laughs> and she is remarkable in that movie. Yeah. In Welcome yeah. to the Dollhouse. Remarkable. And it's so good to see her. Uh, I just wish she got more work because she's yeah. such a good actor. Yeah. Well, uh, make sure you check out Scream. Uh, it's available. The first three movies are available on Max right now. Yeah, do a double feature of Scream and Son of the Mask and have yourself a <laughs> Jamie Kennedy experience. Just make sure you drink a lot during Scream. Ugh. And so you pass out and don't have to watch Son of the Mask. <laughs> Such a bad movie. Oh, my God. Uh, any last thoughts on Scream? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just want to end, end on <laughs> Jamie Kennedy. Yes, Scream. We did the 80s horror movies. We did the 70s horror movies. And the movies in the 70s that we covered and the movies in the 80s that we covered redefine the genre of mm-hmm. horror. And this also redefines the genre of horror. And... From the master of horror, Wes Craven, who constantly redefined uh, the horror genre. You know, uh, Freddy Krueger was the first guy to run. Yeah. He'd scare the ass out of you. They lumbered before, but he ran after you. I remember that first shot of him running in Nightmare on Elm Street being like, they can't do that. That's against the rules. Uh, And then he comes... Yeah. yeah. And then he comes back with Scream and completely redefines it. As you take the dumb teenager trope, yeah. You know, of the 70s yeah. or whatever. And you flip it, and the kids are smarter than the adults in this. Right, right. But some, a little too smart for their own good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the point where they have to murder people. Yeah. That, and this is my favorite thing about this. It started the whole trend of there being two killers. Yeah. Because you never suspected it. Yeah. In 1996, it was like, how does Ghostface get from here to there so quickly? Because there were two of them. Did they do three? Did they have three killers in one of these? I maybe. It uh, might have been. They should have had three in, in Scream 3. That and then four in Scream yeah, 4. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then everybody, then, and, then by the end, there's just one just, person that's, that's the victim and everybody else is, is a killer. Is, everybody's murdering me. <laughs> um, I also just want, I want these refreshings of the series mm-hmm. to not continuously call them what the first movie is. Uh, Scream did it. Uh, Candyman did it. Yeah. Like, d- don't. Please, just if it's if it's a sequel, stick a number behind it. Or sure. Give it, a, give it a subtitle. Exactly. Something. Scream. One more trip to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. We'll be uh, doing our stepdad show. Talk some more about some '90s horror movies and other fun Halloween things we've been watching. Oh and yeah. Stuff. yeah. And and if you're a nerd like us and you love uh, Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of stuff, check out uh, Matthew Lillard's company, Beetle and Grimm. Yeah. Uh, get yourself some whiskey to play games with. Yeah. Good towns. What's your favorite scary movie? Ooh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, get that. Get that. Welcome rolling. It's funny because he seems to only do stuff with Seth Meyers because he. Or Seth Green. 
He seems to only do stuff with Seth Green. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, The Jeffersons, already in progress. <laughs> 